Big questions, even bigger guests. This is the big interview. Good day and welcome to the SL Podcast. I'd like you to hit the rewind button 10 years when Qatar were announced as the next hosts of the World Cup in 2022. Many of us were confused. There were much better hosts in our opinions, of course, but of course we don't know a lot about Qatar. Well, since then a lot has been happening on the ground there, especially with the construction and the use of migrant workers in the country. Now, while the news has reported on it, news has kind of gotten quiet recently. Well, our guest today is Ella Knight, who is a campaigner for human rights at Amnesty International, who have put out a report called Reality Check, which takes another look at the situation going on in Qatar. This is the problem with the 2022 World Cup, part one. Welcome to the big interview. I'm happy to be joined by Ella Knight, who is a campaigner in the migrant labor rights team at Amnesty International. Ella, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Slew. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So your work extends beyond football, which is obviously our main obsession. Uh, You've also discussed the USA secret war with Somalia, drone wars and more. At what point did Amnesty start investigating the World Cup and perhaps FIFA as a whole? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, Amnesty covers many, many different human rights issues, as you've touched upon, and I've worked on a number of different issues. Um, But Amnesty actually has been um, looking at the issue of migrant labour rights in relation to the World Cup in Qatar since Qatar was, essentially since Qatar was awarded the right to host the tournament. So way back in around 20, well, 2010, I think it's almost to the day, 10 years ago, that Qatar was um, awarded the right to host the tournament. Um, So we've been looking at the labour rights issue since then. Um, You know, we've looked at issues uh, as an organisation around World Cups in other countries, including South Africa, Russia, Brazil. Um, And we, we really see, we saw that Qatar was really seeking the spotlight when it bid for this World Cup. Mm. Um, And we saw it as our opportunity to shine our own light on some different issues that maybe Qatar didn't want the world to see, but we felt were were very important for everyone to see. Um, The World Cup just wouldn't be possible without the two million migrant workers in the country. Um, And they need to be part of the story. Um, And so, yeah, we've been looking at it from for many, many years. So when you investigate the stories, because obviously we we kind of see headlines and then I always feel that they kind of disappear into the background because we get more soccer to watch. Uh, But in terms of sourcing information from the workers uh, that you that you mentioned and and witnesses on the ground in Qatar, how do you how do you you go about putting those reports and those stories together? Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting question. And, And as you can imagine, a lot goes into those into those reports that, that end up in, in kind of headlines. Um, so, I mean, one thing that has been interesting about Qatar is that Amnesty International has has always had access to the country since we've been investigating this issue. And that's something that we don't always have, um, you know, in other parts of the Gulf region, we're not necessarily even allowed in the country. So we have had access. Um, Originally, um, when researchers, investigators from my team would would go to Qatar, um, they could visit 
you know the labour camps. These accommodate huge accommodation sites where where hundreds, thousands of workers are living, um, and they could sit down and they could you know have have in depth conversations with workers about their situation um, and about their grievances. Um, over the years, I think as, as scrutiny on Qatar has increased, the, the kind of security has also increased and the level of access has, has um, dwindled, I would say. So we still can go to the country, but it's much more difficult to talk to migrant workers themselves once you're in the country. There's a greater risk to the workers from, of talking to us. Um, there was, I think, a trespassing law passed um, sometime in the, in the last few years, which meant that you know we can't really go into those labor camps anymore um so nowadays we're, we're doing much more of our research remotely um because the security is 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 better that way so we conduct in-depth um telephone interviews with workers either within qatar um or with workers who have returned back to their countries of origin um, that obviously gives more space, more security to have those frank discussions. We also then look for, you know, other evidence. We seek contracts, you know, employment contracts, um, evidence of their residence documents, their pay slips, these kind of these kind of things to kind of back up their claims. Um, and we do also sit down and talk to the government of Qatar. Um, they have been open to conversations throughout the decade, um, so that gives us another angle. Um, to our investigations. Now, as you mentioned, almost 10 years to the day back in Zurich, uh, De December 2nd, 2010, uh, they voted to select the hosts of uh, 2018 and 2022. Oh, wait, sorry. Was it 2022 and the 2026 World Cup um, that they were selecting for? Um, but the year before, uh, Qatar actually enacts this kafala system law. Um, would you be able to ex explain that to us in layman's terms? Yeah, absolutely. So the kafala system has been in existence um, in Qatar actually for for decades, um, for many, many, many years, um, and it's a, a system of sponsorship essentially, which means that a migrant worker is legally bound to a specific sponsor, um, and the sponsor is usually their employer, so usually an, a company, um, or in the case of domestic workers, it might be a private individual. And there are different uh, versions of the kafala system all, the, all across the Gulf. So it's not only Qatar, um, you know, Saudi Arabia also operates the kafala system, as does uh, the United Arab Emirates. Um, and it's a, it's a really problematic system because it creates this massive power imbalance between the worker and the employer. Um, the worker, until recently in Qatar, a worker couldn't leave the country or even change jobs without the permission of their employer, um, which obviously <laughs> creates huge, huge problems and, and really leads to a cycle of, of abuse. You know, if my employer is not paying me or is forcing me to work seven days a week for, for months on end, I would leave. I would leave my job and I would change employers. But for, for these migrant workers who have come to Qatar in search of, you know, financial security, a better future for their children, they've left behind their wives, their husbands, their parents, um, and they are ending up in this cycle of abuse. Uh, which is really facilitated by the kafala system. So is, is that where the term slave labor started getting used to describe what's going on there? Is, is that they don't have these, these uh, basic human rights uh, that this law is facilitating? Is that, is that the case? Yeah, exactly. It, it, 
it means that it's very hard to to escape an, ab- an abusive situation and you know it, a culmination of of many different violations um that occur can lead to a situation of forced labor essentially and i think that's where some of those allegations came from um and so we've you know one of the main things we've been pushing for as amnesty over the last you know 9 10 years is for the total abolishment of the kafala system and it needs to be replaced with a a new system um where workers are are, are not under the complete control of their employer as far back as i can remember i think it must have been around 2016 or 17 that i started hearing about this but when did these issues started being um exposed to the general public yeah i mean i think I think I would say it's around 2012 2013 is when I think really you know the kind of really in-depth reports of abuse in Qatar started to emerge um the Guardian newspaper in the UK did a a, a big expose and the same year Amnesty International did a kind of seminal report called the dark side of migration um which really looked at the kafala system and all of the other different abuses that occur in the country um and that's when I think pressure started to mount on Qatar really uh, and and people started to hear about these stories you also had um international trade unions um uh you know uh speaking about these issues and there was i think what what started to make the headlines is that there was a very clear link between the abuse and exploitation of these migrant workers and the delivery of the world cup as i said so the migrant workers are absolutely fundamental to the world cup and it it really wouldn't be possible without them they are building the stadiums you know that's probably the most common thing we see they're building the stadiums they are developing the roads they're developing doha's metro system when fans come to the country they will be driving fans in taxis they will be serving them in restaurants welcoming welcoming them in hotels and migrant workers will be uh you know providing the security for for the matches themselves so they're absolutely fundamental and i think that's why we started seeing so many headlines now how did qatar respond to all of this criticism because you know i'm from south africa and we also had some controversy around our world cup but it was more so how we acquired the world cup not how mm-hmm. we how we how we handled the construction of the stadiums as far as i know but how, what is the ilo agreement and what has qatar done in response to this criticism Sure. So at the start I would say uh Qatar kind of tried to minimize these allegations, brush them off, say they're a one-off case, you know, make the argument that this is not widespread, you can find these kind of cases anywhere you look if you want to. Uh I I think then as as allegations allegations continued and, you know, media interest grew, they started to kind of change tact and I think they realized that that this could overshadow the World Cup. The World Cup is a dream to Qatar to host. Mm. Um and they obviously realized that something needed to shift. So they then began kind of rebranding, I would say, trying to rebrand. Um and they would start to make announcements, you know, I think three or four times they've announced over the years that they've abolished the kafala system. Um you know, each time it was we were trying to work out h- how real are these all these promises and and to start with at least they were they were quite empty it was a rebranding exercise kafala is really ingrained in in the society that's what people know um and so it definitely took time for there to be a realization even at the top that this was a, a human rights 
issue and um, migrant workers are equals and should be treated as such. I think really the turning point was um, the Gulf crisis in 2017 when Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries severed diplomatic ties with Qatar um, and imposed a blockade, blockade on the country and that, that you know, left Qatar out in the cold a bit and I think this is what led them to eventually agreeing to this ILO agreement as you say, which was a big step. It was, you know, it was saying to the world that we are willing to join up with the International Labour Organization, the ILO, to fundamentally reform our labour systems. Um, in this ILO agreement, um, Qatar made commitments to bring its laws, its policy, its practice in line with international law on areas like payment of wages, recruitment fees, and um, it also pledged to replace the kafala system. So that was in 2017, so we've had three years um, since that agreement was made. And there has been progress, but I think as you know, our recent report shows, there's, there's a lot still to be done. Um, before the World Cup. Yeah, and you know, the, the report is, itself is called Reality Check, and, and I like that title because um, there, there always seems to be this um, disparity almost between what people say they'll do and what actually happens um, in reality. So, you know, you mentioned earlier workers not being paid properly by their by their um, their employers. What is the current reality with wage protection in Qatar right now? Yeah, uh, so yeah, I mean, as you say with the reality check, I think the point of this for us is for us to say, hey, yes, Qatar is taking some good steps, but this is not the end of the story. Um, even if Qatar wants us to think that there is a lot more to be done. Um, and, you know, we have two years before the eyes of the world are going to move on, really. And this is the time we need to make that change. Mm. Um, so as you say, as you mentioned, pay, pay, pay grievances and wage issues. This is one of the most common complaints that we as Amnesty receive, and I think that a lot of other organisations receive these complaints. Um, workers can go months on end for not, and not, months on end not being paid, um, or have months of delays in their wages. Um, and they're also not getting, you know, end of service benefits and things like that, things that they are promised in their contract. Uh, but when it comes to it, um, the money just doesn't come to them. COVID-19 has obviously exacerbated um, this issue as, you know, it's caused these kind of issues all around the world. Um, in Qatar, it's definitely exacerbated the issue of, of delayed and unpaid wages, but it, that's also something that was there for, for many years before. Um, Qatar's, you know, it's put in place things like a wage protection system, which means that companies have to pay their employees by bank transfer rather than, you know, cash in hand. Um, and that does allow the government to monitor payments. And technically, it should allow it to, you know, flag, the system should flag when someone is not getting paid for, you know, a couple of months. But ultimately, from what we can see, it's failing to stop these abuses, it's failing to um, put an end to those unpaid wages once they're detected and once and before workers really get into dire situations. Um, being paid in full and on time is obviously an absolutely basic right for someone who is working, um, but it really causes and it really causes huge problems for workers. So often a worker has paid. Um, 
high recruitment fees to even secure their job mm. um, in Qatar. So, for example, you know, a worker might uh, come from Nepal, might have, have paid maybe up to 2,000 US dollars just to secure their job in Qatar. Mm. People obviously can't always afford that money. That's a lot of money by anyone's standards. Um, so they're taking out really um, high interest loans, coming to Qatar already indebted, and then not being paid for months on end. Um, they just want to send money home. Yeah. <laughs> they just want to educate their kids. But, but this, these, these um, wage issues don't allow that. That was part one of our interview with Ellen Knight, who is a campaigner for human rights at Amnesty International. Stay tuned for part two. It's coming very, very soon. The Big Interview is a team-driven effort driven by the following individuals at the SL Podcast. It is hosted and produced by Slu Paho. It is edited by Aidan Hewitt with graphics provided by Nino Segaleni. Brought to you by Sokola Duma.